Everybody, welcome back to the Noel Kassler podcast, episode 92, coming at you from the beautiful Hudson Valley. Sun's about to come out. We're turning a corner, I can tell. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Great to be back here with you. Sorry, last week's episode cut off at a crucial point in my story. I believe we left it where I had just come off stage, best set of my life. Jeff Ross included me in his comments when he went back on stage. He said, I look like David Spade if somebody left him in the dryer too long. (laughs) And then he uh, walked up to me, gave me a big smile, big thumbs up. And he was like, good set, dude. And it felt so good inside, you know, not from any hero worship of of Jeff Ross, who I like, but just because I was explaining that moment was about a personal thing. You know, it was about building self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. It wasn't about cash and prizes. I wasn't making any money. My, I wasn't going to get discovered. I simply wanted to sort of practice my art and know that it was effective and know that I had done the best I could do in that moment with the skills I had, that I was truthful to who I was, you know, and so many times in life, your head can take you out of the game. You know, and you can you can you can fold the pressure and you can sort of, you know, be your own worst enemy, especially in the arts. And when you learn how to get out of your own way and, and sort of trust the training that you have and trust there's a reason you're trying to do something, you know, if in fact you're doing it for the right reasons, <laughs> not everybody should be doing stand up. Um, obviously, <laughs> or whatever it is, not saying you're special if you can do it well, it's, just, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very uh, unique discipline that uh, at the moment is quite popular. So a lot of people do it, but, you know, to do it well is a, uh, is a real skill. And I, I believe I did it well that day. So it's not about me bragging. That was just sort of the end of the story. It was like, I did something that I wanted to do on my own dime for no other reason than it was the right thing for me to do as an artist, you know, and the side benefit was it, you know, was an actual benefit for Adam Schiff. And as somebody who grew up in progressive politics and going to benefits, starting when my grandmother would take me to the Clearwater revivals, you know, that Pete Seeger had in the 80s up here in Westchester at Croton on Hudson, or when I worked for Jackson Brown and we'd be doing like a benefit for Barbara Boxer in some rich dude's backyard somewhere in Southern California, it was cool to be the guy who was asked to be on the benefit, you know, because that was always my dream as an artist. Like you all, everybody wants to sort of make it. You want to be famous and all that. And, uh, you know, I'm not without my own dreams along those lines. I think anybody who goes into the field as some element of the child, like, you know, I want to win an Oscar kind of thing. But truthfully, my goals became like, I'd love to be the guy on the benefit. You know, to me, like, that's the greatest compliment that people call you in to do your art, you know, for some other reason, for some, you know, part of of the greater good. 
as I've said before, when I worked for Springsteen, my job was like getting all the people who ran the food banks in New York City set up with tables so they could raise money off the crowd as they came into the show. And that was my favorite part of the night. That was the most meaningful thing I did. That and they also let me like surprise them every night, like with the fact that I was going to take them backstage. You know, I think we did it before the concert or something to say hi to Bruce. You know, that was thrilling too. That's like being rock and roll Santa Claus, you know, like, guess what? You didn't know this was going to happen, but you're coming with me right now. And, you know, the look on people's faces when you give them that surprise and that treat, you know, when all they were trying to do or expecting was standing in a hallway at the garden and collecting, you know, dollar bills and spare change for an hour before the show. And then they were going to go home or maybe stick around and see the concert. Next thing you know, you're bringing them back to meet the boss and that was cool <laughs> so anyway it was fun to be on a benefit myself and that's the end of the story apologies for the technical difficulties I, I have more memory on my computer now but let's get into it it's another week it's another kind of dreary new england vibe here on the east coast you know it's kind of cold and gray but the sun is breaking through the clouds and there's always reason for hope right and, and we're celebrating Dr. King's birthday. It was on Monday. It was the national holiday. I believe his birthday was actually Sunday, but we should celebrate it all week, right? We should celebrate it all month. We should celebrate it all year. We should celebrate Americans who have the audacity of hope and challenge us to speak to our better angels. Like what other reason are we here for, right? And what are we suffering now? We're suffering an overdose of like toxic politicians, of men and women who clearly had nobody's best interest in mind but their own and, and knew instinctually or because of opposition research or demographics or whatever that plenty of Americans would buy into that BS, right? They've been, you know, groomed to, to believe the worst about their fellow man, to accept things that like, you know, along the lines of immigrants are coming to, you know, take over our country or take your job. You know, when I hear Kevin McCarthy speak about immigration, I'm like, your last name is McCarthy. <laughs> you know, you didn't come over here on the Mayflower, bro. You came over here with some people like my people from Ireland who weren't welcome, you know, who were escaping political oppression and, and it forced famine because of another, you know, dynasty and monarchy and sort of, you know, globalist, you know, mindset, right? You were considered less than and your life was expendable, right? And you had to get on a boat and come to America. And the only jobs you could get were being a cop, you know, <laughs> or working in a factory. They're all being in indentured servants. All the other humiliations that every sort of immigrant group has suffered when they came to this country, right? To turn around and however many generations later, be the speaker of the house and, and to say to the American people that your biggest fear right now is immigrants, that our problem is immigrants and securing the border, that is not our biggest problem, okay? That's not to say that immigration isn't a complete imbroglio for any politician who inherits the issue, right? Because destabilization, right? Who destabilized Central America and South America, right? We did. <laughs> you know, we had a hand in all of the conditions that are causing people to flee their homelands, just like the same sort of principles had a hand 
in Europeans fleeing their homeland. You know, watch the brilliant documentary that Ken Burns and his partner did on the US and the Holocaust. It'll make you ill. It'll make you ill as an American to watch this, you know, to see the, the ship, I think it was called the St. Louis. And it, you know, it filled up in Hamburg and left Hamburg, you know, with a full boat. This is, you know, before Hitler invaded Poland, right? With a full boat of, of Jewish families coming to the US. And they got here and they were turned around, you know, after cruelly, you know, being robbed by the Cuban government who took their money and promised them visas and said no dice when they got there, right? And then the Americans wouldn't take them. And that boat had to go back to Europe and people had to get off of that boat, you know, and go back to Belgium and France, you know, and then those countries were invaded by Hitler and a lot of those people died. You know, I think 60% survived, 40% perished at the hands of Hitler and Nazism and authoritarianism. Imagine that heartbreak. You know, imagine thinking you slipped the noose, so to speak, you're getting your family to a safer place and then you're denied when you get there, you know, and you're messed with. And that's what we're doing, right? That's what we're doing to immigrant families. That's what Ron DeSantis did to men and women who traveled across six countries to make it to San Antonio. And then somebody comes up to him and says, hey, we're gonna fly you to you know, Massachusetts and they're gonna take care of you and your kid's gonna get fed and healthcare and education and it's all gonna work out, just get on this plane. You know? And then they get on the plane and it lands in Martha's Vineyard you know, as the weather's turning cold at the end of the season and they're dumped off at an airport and made to walk down a road alone in the dark not knowing where they are. That's what Ron DeSantis did to those people, right? The same sort of cruelty that was involved in the ethnocentric rejection of Jewish families at the advent of World War II that was being cheered on by prominent Americans, right? Charles Lindbergh was all about America first. He spoke at their rallies, you know? That was his bag, man, that was his party. And he gave an address because he was in some ways the opposition voice, you know, to FDR, to Frank President Roosevelt, right? He was like the right wing answer to Roosevelt and New Deal, social democrat, liberalism policies that saved this country's ass after the depression and after Herbert Hoover and the BS of a chicken in every pot that never worked out, right? And Woodrow Wilson might have been chicken in every pot, but you get my point, right? That same sort of, I'm a good, decent American, patriotic, you know, brave pilot, Charles Lindbergh, right? Horrible anti-Semite, horrible racist. His speech is there that he gave in a radio address in the Burns documentary. And he talks about like, hey, let's not get involved. This is, you know, this is a battle between a couple countries, but it's about protecting the right the white race, right? We don't want Jewish people here. A couple is good, but too many is a problem. That's basically a direct quote. You know, that's insanity. And that same rhetoric is alive now in our country. They're using the same name, America first. Like, are you kidding me? That's insane. It's insane that the same branding exists and it exists because it worked, because it was popular. You know, because there's a dark side to an American 
and you know, any kind of personality, right? It, it doesn't, it's not exclusive to America. I speak about America because I'm an American. So I kind of stay in my lane, but we can see it happening in Italy. We can see it happening in Hungary. You know, we see it happening in Russia, the way, you know, Putin is a madman and he's running that country, but people go along with him. Not all of them. We saw the brave people who protested, but enough go along with his homophobia, with his racism, with the sort of Christian white nationalism, right? Which is essentially what's going on there in Europe. That's why CPAC, you know, has Orban speaking and does rallies over there because they know it's an effective tool to manipulate people. If you can equate their religion with their race, right? And, and some sort of dogma of supremacy, you can get people to do all kinds of things as we saw in World War II. You know, perhaps the most recent and the largest example of that kind of evil in the world. And, and you would think something deep and heavy and scary and offensive to mankind, you know, as the, as the Holocaust and the horrors of the World War of World War II were, you think it would like we would be done for at least a couple hundred years, right? You would think like that stuff isn't going to come up again in conversation for a long time because people are still alive who went through it. And here we are, you know, 70, 80 years later, back in the same boat, you know, with the same sort of ideas festering in our society. So to think of a speaker of the house who put 19, 20 members, you know, on committees that, that were part of an America first MAGA movement that denied the last democratic election in our country, that denied the results, that refused to certify Joe Biden as the president when anyone knew he won fair and square. They knew it was a lie that Trump was saying, you know, Trump was just talking about his own ego and didn't want to be seen as a loser. He had no interest in continuing to be president. He just didn't want to go to jail. He hated being president, right? He didn't show up to work every day till noon and he lived upstairs. <laughs> I talk about that all the time. Imagine that, you know, imagine getting the kind of the greatest job in the world if you really care about affecting change. There's no more powerful single position in the world. You know, most people who have that kind of job would be like, I cannot wait to get up in the morning. You know, I can't wait to hit the office and see how I can help. And that was never Trump's instinct from the beginning. It was just about how can I stuff my pockets? How can I make my idiot kids richer? You know, how can I get people to go to my golf resorts? That was all he talked about. Somebody, I think it was Jeff Ross, actually. Somebody went to Mar-a-Lago right after he became president. I believe it was Jeff Ross and uh, happened to be there for an event or something like that. And, and Trump saw him, you know, and Trump's like been, this is like January of 17 or something. And uh, or, yeah, right. So Trump has been like, I don't even know if he'd been inaugurated yet. He might still be president elect at this point, but Jeff Ross saw him and Trump's like, hey, can you believe the new ratings for Celebrity Apprentice? They're terrible, they tanked. He's referring to Arnold Schwarzenegger taking over the franchise. And Jeff Ross is like, what? Like he's talking about Celebrity Apprentice. This guy just got elected to be president of the United States. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that they would like, it would be mentioned again, you know, given the enormity of the new role he was about to step into. But that's not how his brain works. It was all little ego. 
You know, a real leader is like Zelensky. That guy was a sitcom actor. He was a comedian. You don't hear him doing his bits when he's talking to people now. You don't hear him referring back to his career as an actor, not to belittle that, but it just doesn't matter when you get a life and death position. You know, and speaking of that, Putin bombed a building over the weekend, you know, where 60 people perished, babies, children, men and women died in their apartments because Putin dropped a missile on it, you know, launched a missile into it. Clearly no kind of military thing, just a pure war crime. You know, the kind of stuff we saw in World War II when Hitler went in and leveled Warsaw, you know? Watch a documentary on, on, on the ghetto in Warsaw. You know, that alone should have been the end of World War II. You know, once news of what was going down there got out to the world, it should have been like, game on, mother effer. We're coming over there now, guns are blasting, and we're going to knock you back to the Stone Age, Hitler. But instead, we had Charles Lindbergh and these guys saying, hey, it's none of our business. Stay out of it. And that's what the GOP is saying today to Ukraine, you know, and now they're in control. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, and people like that on the Oversight Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee. What the hell is Marjorie Taylor Greene doing on the Homeland Security Committee? She denied 9-11. She said the so-called attack on the Pentagon, though we've never seen evidence of a missile you know, or a plane rather, hitting it. Like, who does that? How could you hold public office in the United States of America and deny 9-11? But there it is. And now she has oversight over Congress. She has an input into Homeland Security. Somebody who was given away a 50 caliber sniper rifle, you know, as part of a contest in her last campaign. And she's somebody who ran unopposed thanks to QAnon the first time in her North Georgia seat. She moved into somebody else's district, a Democrat who'd been chased out of that district in the middle of the night by QAnon. And that's a story that hasn't been properly chased down or reported. There's so many stories that don't get reported and we can't keep up. We can't catch our breath and that's part of the design. That's part of the reason you have George Santos and these kind of chaos agents. Most people would view that as a liability Right? And, and Kevin is cynical and venal enough to allow the man to be seated. But truth be told, he's great for them because he, he provides color, right? He provides distraction. I don't mean color in, a, you know, in an ethnic sense. I mean, he, he's a flashy, grotesque, can you believe this is happening, headline grabber. And they know this stuff is going to trickle out little by little. And it'll eat up the narrative because it's irresistible. You know, it is a soap opera. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying don't enjoy watching it. I'm saying think of the strategy behind it. It's a win-win. If he eventually has to leave, leave Congress, he helped Kevin McCarthy get the speakership. He gets seated. They're putting him on the Small Business Committee, which is especially ironic since he, you know, ripped people off, started a dog charity and kept the money you know, to the point that a veteran lost his dog because George Santos stole three grand from him. You know, and small business is very important right now. There's been 10 million new small business applications since Biden became president. 
that's a record. And that's what we need in this country. We need small businesses. We need to get back to sort of boutique building. My philosophy in this country, especially when I drive around New England, Massachusetts and stuff, we've all seen it. There's so many towns with these great old buildings, you know, old mills and old factories, you know, that have been shuttered. The Northeast is full of them, Pennsylvania, you know, you get into Ohio, every state has them. Think of all the cool things you can build, you know, like bicycles and guitars, instruments, furniture, all the stuff that America led the world in craftsmanship. Why? Because we had people from all over the world. You know, everything that people sell as some great American invention is because there was so many people in America with such a diverse skill set that we were able to kick out kick-ass stuff on the regular, you know, because it was everybody working together. It wasn't just the Germans and the Swiss and, you know, the Dutch and all these other people that traditionally make great stuff. We had them all here, you know? And that's, that's, that's an asset. That's what we need to get back to in America, really high-end goods that are meant to last. That's my philosophy, you know, especially when you look at fast fashion and all the crap that's being made, you know, in, in China and Southeast Asia, not to diss on them. I'm just saying like Uniqlo and all these labels that we all wear and buy, stuff's made not to last, it's made to fall apart. It's made to conveniently buy with a click, have it shipped to your house and then you wanna you know, get rid of it and you feel better by giving it to you know, Salvation Army or something, which is a cool thing to do, but they all have enough stuff. And truth be told, this stuff now all ends up in Africa and they're drowning in it in certain countries. It's just too much of this crap because we're just making too much stuff and it doesn't leave the planet, you know? But one of the problems we have on this planet now is not people walking around naked for lack of clothes, <laughs> okay? I promise you that. That's not to say don't donate your, your gently used clothing, but we got too much of it. We don't need these giant big box stores making all this stuff, you know? Because it's just, it, it's not built to last. You need things that are built to last or high quality things that you're meant to take care of. You know, and not everybody can afford that. I'm not saying everything should be, you know, out of the, I'm wearing a nice cashmere, you know, Todd Snyder hoodie right now. It's a luxury item. You know, this is an expensive thing. It's, I'm, I take care of it. I'll take it off when, when I finish doing this show. You know, I put it back in a garment bag and put it in my closet, you know, and I wear it on special occasions. The rest of the time I wear my t-shirt and my sweats and my hoodies. You know, you take care of things. That was the America we grew up in. You got, or some of us did, you know, there wasn't a ton of big, big box stores when I was a kid, you know? You go to Bloomingdale's and you go to fancy places and you get a nice outfit at Brooks Brothers and it was meant to last and you kept it. And that attitude is a wonderful thing, right? Because we make so many cool things. You always hear me, you know, opening up the show, playing an instrument. I talk about Martin Guitar Factory. That's Nazareth, PA. That factory has been there since the, you know, 19th century making the best acoustic guitars in the world. And there's a couple dozen other manufacturers that make them sort of just as good, but that's the main one. And it's a factory in Pennsylvania that is, you know, employed generations of Pennsylvania ants, making a high quality product that isn't cheap. You know, you're not gonna just go buy one for 300 bucks in a guitar center. 
you know, and it's not going to be your first guitar, but it could be your last guitar because it'll last a lifetime if you take care of it. You know, it's an investment. And that's the kind of manufacturing we need in this country. We need a generational investment saying we're going to make something that's so good, people are going to like want it all over the world, you know, and we're not going to cash in and mass produce it so our board can become, you know, billionaires and we can go public on Wall Street. We're going to keep it small, keep it boutique, man. You know, that's the way to build stuff. You'll, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You know, that's why I always shop in like curated stores. Like you'll find these men's stores. When I was on the road, I'd find a little store and the guy would have boots and watches, you know, red wing boots. And, you know, my watch is a Shinola that's built in a factory in Detroit. The guy bought an old factory in Detroit, trained a bunch of unhoused people, you know, that needed a, you know, a leg up in life and a job, how to build watches. And now they build watches and bicycles. And this watch is twice as much worth twice as much now as when I bought it, you know, and I bought it because I heard that story and I bought it from a small store in, you know, North Carolina when I was on the road. My point is that's a success story. That's an American success story that's revitalizing, you know, a town like Detroit, a city like Detroit that was left behind when the economic policies of, of the Reagan era first took hold, right? We were getting our asses kicked by auto manufacturers, primarily in Japan at the time. Our quality suffered, right? Because people were trying to cut corners, not the workers, but the guys who owned the company. It, came, it became about the bottom line and squeezing out profits. You know, so they started manufacturing stuff cheaper and cutting corners to please shareholders, you know, not their customers. And that's always a recipe for disaster. It makes things cheaper. It makes certain people richer, but the rest of us suffer. And the worst part of that is we end up with a lot of junk on the planet. You know, I'm, you know, the car I, I have is Volvo, right? You know, we got it 2014 or something, you know, take care of it. You know, it, it's basically built to last. I want, and it's not an American car. So, you know, <laughs> but my point is, you know, it's built to last. Find something that's built to last. Find policies that are built to last. And that's why I like Biden, right? Because he's not doing the flashy, exciting rhetoric. He's got his nose to the grindstone. They're making solid ground economically. The jobs numbers out Friday are great. You know, inflation is down to 6.5%. We are doing well by all these indicators, right? The other side is addicted to chaos and headlines and stuff for Sean Hannity to spew at at night. Unfortunately, you know, they just got a big bonus in the documents that were discovered in Biden's house in Delaware. You know, I think I talked about the Biden Penn Center and that was the original story as we left it. Now it's obviously become much bigger. Merrick Garland has seen the need to you know, appoint a special prosecutor just to show there's no sort of special favoritism here, you know, right? And, and I don't need to insult you with an explanation of, of the difference between Trump and Biden in this situation. You know, Trump defied subpoenas. He had his lawyers lie on his behalf. He hid and obfuscated for about a year and a half when National Archives was going down there trying to get the documents back. He was like, we don't have them. You know, he lied about it. Biden found him, his lawyer found him rather, and called up the FBI, called up the National Archives, you know, sort of recused themselves and called in 
the professionals to deal with the situation. And then allowed, not that he has a choice in the matter, he's not allowing the DOJ, but he didn't object to a, you know, an attorney general following the letter of the law, because he's a good dude. And I don't really believe he has anything to hide. And I don't think anybody does. You know, I don't think anybody in the GOP who's going to be talking about this breathlessly, breathlessly for the next two years is going to really think, you know, that Joe Biden, that President Biden had any nefarious intent with these documents. You know, you can't say the same thing for Trump. You just can't. <laughs> Trump was taking classified documents that dealt with, you know, Israeli secrets that dealt with nuclear energy, you know, one of our most closely guarded thing because it has the most value. As I've talked about before, it costs a lot of money to develop nuclear technology, not just in terms of weaponry, but energy. You know, th those secrets are worth a lot of money. And Trump knows that. He would have walked into the White House on day one and said, what, you know, what can I put in my pocket? What can I pilfer? You know, bring in Jared and Ivanka. Let them help me do this. You know, it was all about a scam, as I said at the top of the show. It wasn't about helping people. And I think that's the fundamental difference between the two men. You know, and there's also the difference of Biden has been in the Senate, you know, was in the Senate the year after I was born. I was born in 1971 or two years, 73 is when he was seated, you know, in the US Senate. The guy spent his whole life, 50 years serving this country selflessly. You know, he got rich along the way, you know, as he should, you know, not grotesquely wealthy, but he's got a beach house and he's got a nice home and he's able to, you know, provide for his family, which is trouble, like any family, right? He's got addiction. He's got all kinds of trauma in his family, just like the rest of us. And he's honest and open about it. And that's constantly exploited by the right. You know, people forget this, but they stole his daughter's recovery journal. His daughter, you know, everyone knows about Hunter Biden and his troubles with addiction. He has a daughter who suffered from addiction too. And she was in rehab when the pandemic hit and living in like a, you know, kind of a halfway house rented room situation in Florida, near kind of Daytona Beach, that part of Florida, near Cape Canaveral. And uh, she moved out of this place and left like a backpack behind in the closet. And one of the roommates found it, found her diary in there, which is just like when you're getting sober you're writing everything down because you have all these emotions and all this crap that's coming out you want to get it down on paper so you can take a look at it you know and, and share it with somebody else like a sponsor or somebody you know you, you're trying to unpack all this junk that's inside of you so you can start to build self-esteem and some clear-sightedness again and understand what's sort of motivating you. you know the drinking is a symptom or the drug use is generally a symptom you're trying to cover up something deeper and you want to know what is motivating you, you know, you, you want to, they talk, they talk about doing a moral inventory. I, were, I wrote about this this week in my Substack thing. You know, you're, you're doing that to make amends, to own your part in things. It's not about what the other guy did. You're trying to clean, keep your own side of the street clean so you can hold your head up high and say, yeah, I made some mistakes, but I own them. I made restitution. And now, you know, that's who I was. That's not who I am anymore. I've let my actions carry out the difference, you know, and I, and I have just as much a right to happiness as anybody else, right? So, so his daughter's recovery journal was stolen. The guy who found it 
you know, some Florida man, roommate dude, sold it to Project Veritas. They went and shopped it around to GOP folks, and it ended up at in September of 2020 at a fundraiser in Cape Canaveral that Don Jr. was at, and they passed around this diary. Now, I just learned in some reporting last week that George uh, Santos, when he was at Harbor Wealth Investments, which was a Ponzi scheme he was working at in Florida, he was in New York chapter, but he was working with these guys in Florida. Those dudes were big fundraisers to the GOP and had attended the same fundraiser, right? That, that it's Biden diary was that. It's a weird coincidence, but it's too much of a coincidence to be a coincidence, if you follow me. You know, that same dark money fueled chaos agents will do anything to get power because once we grab it, they can't take it away from us. That same methodology is how you got a George Santos, is how you would get a Republican party that would talk about Hunter Biden for the last three years like they have, even though Hunter Biden is not an elected official. You know, he's a private citizen who is troubled, whose father happens to be famous. You know, Don Jr. is every much, every bit as addicted to cocaine as Hunter Biden ever was on his worst day. Don Jr. is doing it every night, coke fueled rants on Instagram or Facebook or whatever the hell it is. And nobody calls him out. Nobody's talking about any of that. You know, nobody talks about Trump's addiction still in the mainstream media. I was the only guy out there, you know, railing on that. And I've told you a thousand times it wasn't because like, ooh, he's snorting his Adderall. It was because of the stuff underneath it, right? The stuff he was trying to cover up, the addictive personality, the guy so full of character defects and resentment and isms, the kind of poison that you don't want somebody stepping into a position of power holding, right? You know, think of the metaphor, think like you're getting on a plane or a boat or something. And you're, you know, I, when I, I went across to England on the Queen Mary with Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Queen Mary too, you know, this big passenger liner, super luxurious thing. And we left from, from Red Hook, Brooklyn to go to Suffolk or Southampton, England. And when we got on, we were going to play, we did, we played three concerts on the boat, the band did, I was the road manager, but they, they had to weigh everything, right? And there's a lot of gear when you're going to do a tour, because we were touring Europe for six weeks after we landed, or, you know, pulled into port. So they're measuring everything, you know, and, and you have what's known as a carny, and you know, it's a list of all the gear you're bringing, and we had to weigh everything within an ounce, because you didn't want extra stuff you didn't need. You don't want extra weight on that boat, right? Or that plane, anybody who's taking a small plane craft, you know, they wanna know how much your bag weighs before they put it on there. You don't want extra baggage because it makes the flight more dangerous if you hit turbulence or the boat less stable if you hit big waves, right? So think of our leaders the same way. You don't want men with a whole bunch of resentments and baggage and anger. You want guys who are pretty much good at getting out of their own way and getting to the job at hand, right? That's what Barack Obama, President Obama, and Michelle Obama's birthday was Monday, shout out, but uh, or Tuesday. But um, you want that kind of person. I remember the first time I saw Barack Obama, you know, it was at the inauguration in the days before this big concert we did. 
and if you remember, the country was in terrible shape, right? The, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were going to hell fast. You know, it was clearly like not going the way anybody thought it was gonna go and nobody had a solution as to how to stop it. You had our economy in the, not just the doldrums, we had the great recession upon us, you know, October, September, you had Lehman Brothers closing, you know, you had the whole like, you know, all these underwater mortgages, you know, that were sold by unscrupulous, you know, lenders in places like Florida, places like Harbor Capital, Ponzi schemes, essentially, where people were selling, you know, giving people loans they had no business getting, you know, to make a quick buck and then destroying people's lives and whole communities. You had all of that in America. You know, the worst economic situation in my lifetime by a mile and the wars, you know, and the specter of terrorism that we were still, you know, pretty, pretty close out from, you know, within the same decade. And then you had Obama. And I'm like, how does this guy look so confident? You know, I, I, I remember seeing him and it was the same way when you see a quarterback or a pitcher or something like in these incredibly pressure filled situations and you see the ones that are like freaked out, you know, wide eyed and just like, nope, <laughs> like I'm going to screw this up. This sucks. Right. Which is how I would be right. Afraid, you know, tremendously. And then you have the guys that are just like, put me in coach. I'm born for this. I know what to do right now. You know, and, and that's, that's who Obama was, man. That, I saw that almost want to say cockiness, you know, but with an empathy. It wasn't his ego, but he was just like, this is what I do. You know, this is what I'm here for. He was clearly a man who embraced that moment and was like up to the challenge. And I was just like, more power to him. <laughs> you know, this guy wants to step in and do that right now. You know, let him do it. And look what he did. You know, and look who his vice president was, who eight years later inherits an even more catastrophic version of the United States than the one that President Obama stepped into, right? Because now we're coming out of a global pandemic that not only hurt the economy, it shut down the world economy, essentially, for a matter of months, things that are unheard of in our lifetime. We had over a million Americans, you know perishing from a disease. We had one party exploit science to their own political benefit to the point they got people not willing to take a vaccine, not willing to wear a mask to protect fellow Americans on airplanes and in shopping markets and stuff, which is in and of itself a war crime, in my opinion. You know, if you don't do all you can to protect somebody you've never met, then you're an asshole, okay? Because one of the benefits to being alive is protecting other beings that you may never meet, right? You ever pick a rock out of the road so the next guy doesn't roll over it? You know, as a cyclist, I do that all the time, you know? I'll see something on the, you know, in Central Park when I'm riding my bike around that, you know, I'm able to see that somebody else isn't gonna see, you know, and they're gonna get a flat tire or crash or something. You do that just because it's the right thing to do. Wearing masks was the same thing. Right? You wanted people to do it because it was what you do. You protect people, even if you're never going to meet them, even if you're never going to get anything out of them. You do it to be a decent human being. And we've lost that sense of decency because the opposite of decent you know, is devious. 
and the deviousness has been rewarded in one of the political parties. So the people without morality that are only looking for themselves to further their own interests, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Lauren Boberts, the people, Nepal Gosers, I don't wanna just mention women, you know, Matt Gates, these scumbags who have nothing to offer. They're just clearly there to be chaos agents. You know, Jim Jordan, a guy who wouldn't protect his own students who were being molested by their coach and he knew about it and just looked the other way because he wanted his career to be on an upward trajectory, you know, and then gets to Congress and never authors any legislation, just sits there like a gadfly in the well of the house, hectoring people that are actually trying to do a good job and save lives, most notably Dr. Fauci, a man they demonized, right? And they're still demonizing and they're probably gonna try to you know, investigate and impeach even though he's left public service. That's insanity, you know? That's like somebody trying to saw through the fire hose when your house is on fire because they don't want you putting out the fire. They want to watch their neighbor's house burn down, right? Because then they want to go in and get the land and put a pool there. That's your metaphor for the GOP. That's what they're doing. They're trying to enrich the few and letting communities burn and suffer. That's it in a nutshell. You don't want that, which is why decency and morality should almost be the first thing we look for in, in, in leaders, and I don't mean a prudish morality, I'm certainly not talking about some kind of theocratic bullshit. I'm talking about decent, good, hardworking people. That's how you judge a man, and that's how you judge these scandals. And if you judge these two men for you know, the same thing as it's written down on a page, right? Classified documents after they left, office special prosecutor appointed, right? The stats are matching up. So you can't just say one guy did it, the other guy didn't at this point. We have to look at the subtleties and the gray areas. We have to look at intent as the law does. You know, if somebody runs down, I'm borrowing this analogy from, I think, Joyce Vance. Somebody runs down another person with their car on purpose, that person committed a murder. Somebody else is driving you know, and, and hits a pedestrian they don't see by accident, that's an accident. You know, if you were negligent or something, you know, there may be charges, but you see what I'm saying? Intent is important when you're looking at a law. And it's certainly important when you're looking at politics. And I think that's, that's what we're gonna have to get to in this case. You know, that's what we're gonna have to sort of keep at the front of our minds. You know, what, what are these people trying to accomplish? You know, you look at Clinton, you know, he kind of kept his nose to the grindstone when all that insanity was going down and still did a great job as president. I'm not excusing his actions, but he was like, we're not going to let this drag down my administration. I'm going to continue to do the job people sent me here to do, which is what you want. And I believe Biden's going to do the same sort of approach, though he'll be forthcoming and appoint a spokesman to talk about this so it doesn't consume his administration. But you want to think about that, you know, and, and think about Ken Starr, a guy who persecuted Clinton, who ended up defending, you know, people at, at, at Baylor University in Texas who were involved with, you know, sexual impropriety, sexual assault, however you want to name it. You know, he protected predators. 
you know, later in his career, he became a pro MAGA guy. So there was no morality when he was going after Clinton. He was just doing the work of that sort of slimy side of DC, the Heritage Foundation, dark money, CPAC kind of BS, right? We learned Matt Schlapp. I don't know if you guys know who that is. He's the head of CPAC, he and his wife, Mercedes, really outsized influence in the Republican party. He's the guy who has, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse come out to smoke bombs and let's Lauren Boebert do her stripper strut up and down the stage. And they do this every weekend to build an army, you know, a white Christian nationalist army of, you know, well-armed, undereducated morons who are going to listen to everything I, they say, right? That guy is now under a lawsuit, you know, for not just sexual propriety, for grabbing you know, another staffer's crotch, you know, for repeatedly, you know, when being told no, going after this guy, you know, that's not cool. You know, and, and not to mention he, he represents an organization which is completely homophobic and stuff. So you have, you know, you have that sort of duplicity and hypocrisy, you know, and there's nothing wrong with, with homosexuality. I don't even like to use that word, gay, LGBTQ, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. And somebody who's a sexual predator is a sexual predator, okay? And it has nothing to do with somebody's sexual identity. It has to do with an act of violence and an act of entitlement and, and, and using another human being for your own gratification. And a lot of times they get off on the fact that, you know, somebody doesn't want to be, you know, involved in that. So, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of uh, attitude is all through DC, you know, and, and there's a guy who had Brett Kavanaugh at his Christmas party, Matt Schlapp did, you know, at his Christmas party and, you know, uh, McLean, wherever he lives. Somebody listening said, I live in McLean and I'm not a racist. Good for you. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying, when last week I was talking about Virginia and the racism, I was talking about Southern Virginia, though there's plenty of racists in McLean. Jim Baker, there's a lot of guys there you know, James Baker, there, there's guys that, that, you know, promoted a sort of American imperialism, you know, Bush era doctrine that did a lot of damage in the world. And I'll leave it at that, but I'm not indicting, you know, wherever you live, you know, and, and that's the other thing. It's like, I speak in generalizations, you know, when I talk about the South or whatever, I'm not saying everyone there is like a member of the KKK or, you know, ignorant or whatever. You know, uh, uh, these are these are generalizations. I'm speaking on topics and how large numbers of people can get swayed by rhetoric. And a lot of that rhetoric comes from inside the beltway. That's why I'm using Matt Schlapp as an example, because he's a very politically correct, connected guy. He had Brett Kavanaugh. He had Matt Gates, you know, at his Christmas party. He had Stephen Miller at his Christmas party, a real life Nazi. You know, who grew up in Santa Monica, Santa Monica Goebbels, as my friend Molly John called him. I've known Molly since before there's Twitter, by the way. We never interact with Twitter. We're friends in real life and have been for a long time, but that was a good line. But anyway, uh, you know, there's that kind of stuff. There's that kind of stuff happening. And they're like, you know, his attitude is like, I'm going to do whatever I want because I'm king of this situation. You know, what are they going to do to me? You know, so he's abusing a staffer, you know, and I believe the staffer was one of Herschel Walker's guys, you know, so it's just, it's so slimy, it's so unseemly, 
and it should poke a hole in any of their, you know, rhetoric that they're claiming the mantle of Christianity, you know, or some pious sort of like attitude of restoring America to what it was, which is just a dog whistle for like a pre-civil rights era America. You know, Glenn Youngkin is a great example of that in Virginia, as I was talking about last week, you know, a six-year-old shot his teacher. Over the weekend, we saw a video of a toddler in his diapers waving around a handgun. That's the stuff of nightmares. That's like the purge, right? That's a horror film that that's happening. You know, and we see video of that. In the days since that video came out, I saw another video of a father barefoot in his living room on his wall-to-wall -wall carpet, you know, in his little condo or whatever, sitting with his son who couldn't have been older than six and they're firing automatic handguns and dropping the magazines out. And he's giving them orders, you know, fire, eject, whatever the hell you do. I'm not a gun guy. But, you know, he's going through these motions, training his son to be a shooter. You know, who knows that? Who knows how that son is going to turn out, right? But he's got, you know, weapon skills now. That's different than learning how to plink a beer can or some kind of thing that we used to do in America. You know, I used to have a little 22 when we would go camping at this farm. My mom's friend, you know, had it. I was taught some gun safety and I would do target practice shooting at beer cans and stuff. I never really enjoyed it. It wasn't my thing, right? But I'm not saying like kids can't be exposed to guns in a supervised environment, right? In Boy Scouts, we would do that marksmanship and stuff. But, you know, you don't sit there in your living room toddler barefoot hand him a pistol and say you know this is how we shoot multiple times and reload right when you're reloading and shooting multiple times you're anticipating warfare that's not just self-defense that's not building marksmanship skills you know that's getting ready for battle and don't think it can't happen here right don't think that children can't be like pressed into that sort of service we've seen that happen in foreign lands, you know, the, the warlords would get grab kids and brainwash them and make them be soldiers. You know, it's horrific. I met one of those kids at the UN. I did an event at the UN in June some years ago, and I met this kid. I'd read his book. He grew up in uh, I want to say the, the the like the Congo, like that area, you know, and, and he'd been he'd been his people had been victims of, you know, a genocide, Rwanda, I believe it was Rwanda, you know, it was the real heavy, dark stuff. And, and this guy had, at one point had been a, uh, you know, a child soldier, you know, he killed people as a kid, you know, heavy, horrible stuff. And he'd somehow, you know, survived that and become like a teacher, you know, and he was an incredibly spiritual guy, you could just feel it. And I remember we were doing this Q and A and, uh, I wasn't there as a speaker. I was there behind the scenes as a talent guy. But uh, we were doing this Q&A and this always stuck with me. Somebody asked him a question, you know, like, because he obviously was a pretty wise dude and had some wisdom. And they asked him for some wisdom. And he said, you want to know about life? Just go out and listen to the birds. He goes, there's nothing I can tell you that the birds can't already. You know, go listen to nature. Go outside. You know, it's all right there to discover. Like this guy had found that wisdom, you know, and he's obviously living 
closer to the land from where he's from, you know, but he hadn't lost that, you know, that tribal sort of wisdom. I don't mean that in any kind of like sense. You know what I'm saying? Like there was some, there was some elders speaking through this young man, right? He, He was speaking a truth that reverberated for centuries. And it was so interesting to me that that's, you know, that's what he landed on, right? There was no sense of, his ego or I'm so smart because I went through all this and I wrote a book and I'm here at the UN. He's like, you want to hear the truth? Go outside and listen to the birds, you know, heavy stuff. I had to pick up the guitar again. It's getting sunny in here and you can't let these things get too hot. But anyway, uh, I should probably wrap it up, right? I've been talking to you for a while now. I know these things are starting to get pretty long and uh, I appreciate you guys sticking with me. I'll try to uh, to make them a little briefer. Brevity has never been my strong suit, but I only do this when I feel like I have something to say. I was on my buddy Pete Dominic's uh, show. He's got a daily like news show, podcast show. He's a great comedian. And uh he was telling me about my podcast or that he listened to it. He was wondering how I could talk so long. And I, I said, it's, you know, it's only if I feel like there's some, you know, truth that I need to tell coming out. And I'm not doing this to preach it, you guys. It's just, I can tell when I'm phoning it in and when I, it's the real thing. And if I'm phoning it again, phoning it in, you're not going to hear it. <laughs> the real thing is going to be like this, you know, I'm going to make mistakes but uh, I tried yesterday for an hour and a half to do a podcast. I mean, filled up my hard drive with attempts. Sometimes I'd get a half an hour into it and I just knew it was BS. So I, I stopped it and I won't subject you to it because there is no real point to what I'm saying other than you need to love each other, right? Love always wins. Empathy is, is what we want to strive for in life. We want to accept everybody and help them be the best versions of their self that they can be. And in my life, I've learned those examples from experience and from culture and from arts. And that doesn't mean I was, you know, instantly imbued with those things. It just meant I had soft eyes. You know, you know, that term soft eyes, it's like, you're not seeing the forest for the trees, right? You're focusing on a tree. You're not seeing everything that's going around. And I think that's what the guy that's going on, right? You want a like relaxed vision, you know, that includes peripheral things, that includes shadows, you know, the interplay of dark and light. You want those soft eyes to, to help you see the truth. You know, I, I was sitting in the bath today, uh, Pete started talking to me about like what my process was in the morning, you know, and uh, he's praying and meditating and writing out morning pages, which I do. But I said, you know, I take a bath. Like if ever I have to perform, I take a long, hot bath. And that's my jam. (laughs) I learned it on the road. He thought it was hilarious and somewhat unmasculine. I told him I learned it from roadies. You know, roadies will take a bath. If you give a roadie a day off in a hotel and it doesn't have a bathtub, God help you if you're the tour manager, because you're going to hear about it at the next gig. Dudes want to soak because it gets the stress out of your bones, you know, and, and that's what I do. And I was laying in the bath today and I'm lucky enough to have a little window above my bath tub. And I have a, there's a huge spruce tree that's maybe 150 feet tall. It's, it's the size of a Rockefeller 
you know, tree lighting tree. It's more beautiful. And I used to work on that gig for a long time, but you're not getting my tree. But anyway, it's this gorgeous tree. And I was watching the sunlight. I couldn't see the tree directly, but I was watching the sunlight come through the tree, right? And, and all the pine needles and pine cones that hang down from it. And the way that sort of interplayed with the shadows on my bathroom wall and the sunlight coming in through the window, you know? And I was like, if that's all I have, that's enough, right? There's something there that shows me there's something beyond this. You know, there's something to watch. It's like a painting or it's like music. Nature is like music, you know? If you were in a prison cell, God forbid, and you had access to a window, you'd still be able to know that there was a sunset going down somewhere just, just by the color of the light that came through, you know? in that most constrictive of circumstances, right? You could still find freedom. You could still connect to something larger than yourself. And that's a good way to think about life, in my opinion. You know, that's a good way to live our lives. Like there's always a moment to connect to something deeper and more truthful within yourself. And often that comes with simply being present you know, just understanding where your feet are, are in any given moment. When I get super overwhelmed, as I do all the time, you know, every day, I got to bring it back to basics. I got to breathe. I got to try to feel my feet. You know, I always start with my big toes. Like, what are my toes doing? Like really being present in them, inhabiting yourself. You know, as I, I always say, be in your meat. You know, that's my personal little mantra that I tell myself not eat your meat, be in your meat. That's what I say when I'm in the shower. When I'm in the shower, I want to be in the shower, right? When I'm in the bath, I want to be in the bath, right? I don't want to be at the dry cleaners later that day. I don't want to be in my boss's office. I don't want to be in the traffic. All those things that I'm going to be in anyway, but I'm going to have a better time dealing with if I'm present when I'm in them. And the only way to get there is through the now, is through being present right now, you know, and knowing where I'm coming from, grounding yourself. You know, there's a million different ways to describe it. There's a thousand arrows pointing towards the truth, right? You have to find your own way. Don't listen to anybody else's dogma too closely. Use it as suggestions, but all the mystics will tell you, like in the end, it, it, it's down to finding your own truth. Oh, my guy Jackson used to say, next voice you hear will be your own, right? Next voice you hear will be your own, you know? That's what you're searching for, you know, because there's something in everybody that needs to be said. There's a story that needs to be told. There's a smile that needs to be flashed. You know, there's a reason we are all here. The universe has meaning. My life and your life have purpose, as Carlos Santana said to me, you know, when he when I walked up to him, you know, and told him I was impressed with something I'd heard him say in a movie or a documentary, he goes, oh, you want to hear the meaning of life? I'll tell you. you know, look into my eyes. The universe has meaning. My life and your life have purpose. That's good news. If you wake up today and you're alive, you have an opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life, even if it's your own. What better gift than healing your own life, than understanding you have a purpose, that you are loved, even if it feels like nobody loves you, 
and nothing goes your way and everybody else has more than you, which is how many of us feel. And that's only gotten worse since social media and the internet, but it's an illusion. It's not true. You already have enough, you know, all the thinking, all the buying of stuff, all that kind of stuff you can accumulate in a lifetime. You can't bring any of that with you the instant you leave this place, right? It's all over in a second for everybody, you know, sooner or later, right? What does live on is the love that we create while we're here, the people we help, you know, the things that we honor. And that doesn't have to be another person. That can be an animal. That can be a plant. That can be a picture. That can be a song. Find something you like and love it, you know, and start with yourself. You know, make that first thing you fall in love with yourself and fall in love with yourself again. You know, I love you and I'm glad you listened to me. <laughs> I sound like, uh, you know, what's his name? Mr. Rogers or something. We need Mr. Rogers, right? We need those kind of guys. You know, we need the holistic helping hands of anybody on deck because we're all in this maelstrom of insanity and political unrest and just the lowest common denominator rhetoric over and over again. And tuning out is not an option because there's real things at stake beyond democracy. Democracy is where you fight the, the fight for climate change, right? Because you don't have a shot at doing anything if Republicans get back in control of the presidency. You know, right now they have the House and not the Senate. So right now, strategically, we're still in a good position. Don't get sidelined by the hype, you know? Listen to all the good people that are doing good work out there. Artists, poets, you know, preachers, politicians, you know, scientists, activists, children, you know? The, the, the best news on all of this is a lot of the younger generation isn't buying the BS, you know? So that's only gonna become more apparent. The sun's coming out as you can see. It's a beautiful day. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Check out my sub stack. Check out noelcastler.com. I'll start sending some more t-shirts out soon. I appreciate all of you guys. I'm gonna let you go now. That was episode 92 of the Noel Castler podcast. I love you. Peace.